Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more. Listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, and so much more. Now sit back, relax, and join me as we get weird. Hey everyone, welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. On today's episode coming up, we have a small collection of some of the creepiest and weirdest cryptids, creatures, and otherworldly entities that have been reported throughout history. From winged harbingers of doom, extraterrestrial space brains, and toxic sludge mutants, this is going to be my season one finale, so brace yourselves, it's going to be epic. 20 episodes, man. I can't believe I'm at uh, 20 episodes of this podcast now. I got to say, though, uh, this one took a little bit longer uh, to put together than I was anticipating for some reason. The past few weeks uh, since my last episode on the Men in Black, uh, my life has just become super busy with projects around the house, uh, things going on with my band, family stuff, birthdays, uh, losing sleep from uh, toddler sleep regression, you know, <laughs> good times, fun stuff. Uh, but it was uh, a little tough to get in all the research and and get everything done and cohesive on time. So thanks for being patient. Uh, it's going to be well worth the wait, I think. And Honestly, it's probably uh, a good point to pause uh, new episodes uh, for a, a little bit, especially since I have uh, 40 Infest and Cryptid Con in November coming up real soon um, that I'll have to prepare for. And uh, I do have some other cool news, though, uh, speaking of which. So I recently decided to invest in a heat transfer press along with a sublimation printer. So I'll be able to actually press my own shirts uh, for conferences. Um, so I'm, I'm really stoked on that. I'm still waiting on the printer to get here, though. So fingers crossed that it actually arrives on time. Um, the heat press is still sitting in a box in uh, my mudroom waiting to be unpacked. And I, I've got to make some some space to actually set it up. But it'll be really nice uh, to be able to make things right here at Strangeology HQ uh, for for different events. And uh, I, I'm, I'm super excited about it. But I wanted to give a big thanks to everyone who supports Strangeology uh, through uh, purchasing my merch over on my shop and to my patrons as well, because all of that helped me move forward into being able to acquire uh, a resource and a tool like that that's readily available. So <laughs> it's a DIY or die, baby. <laughs> um, and so while I'm on break from recording episodes over the next several weeks, I'm I'm going to be working on content, just not on the podcast. So I'll be throwing stuff up on Instagram and, and TikTok and also on my YouTube channel uh, as time permits. I actually wound up going out uh, a few days ago to scout out and do some filming at a location 
in my state with the, the new camera that I picked up for vlogging. And yeah, so I went out and, and filmed <laughs> some stuff out there in the woods and uh, I'll be editing it together. I'm planning to check out some other locations in Vermont and uh, New England in general in the near future. Hopefully a few before the snow flies, but uh, at this point with getting ready for CryptidCon and Fortean Fest, I'm not sure how how much extra time I'll have to do that. But uh, definitely next year I'll be I'll be uh, getting out there more. And for next season, I'm going to be working on booking some new interviews as well. So if you're an investigator, an author, a researcher, a general Fortean cryptozoology, paranormal, ufology enthusiast <laughs> in general and have some cool and interesting things to talk about, um, you can head on over to my website, strangeology.com and shoot me an email and uh, maybe we can set something up. Now, I wanted to play one quick voicemail uh, that the Strangeology hotline received from Connor over at Bigfoot Anonymous. And if you didn't know, if you're new to the show, I do have this hotline that you can call into. And if you have a story about something weird you experienced, something strange and unexplained, it could have to do with UFOs, cryptids, ghosts, what have you. Um, I definitely want to hear your stories, so call in. Uh, the number you can find on my website or you can call in to 802-448-0612. And I believe it's about a three-minute time limit on the voicemail message. Uh, so if the story goes over, you can call in and pick up where you left off for that second voicemail. Uh, so here we go. Hey, Strangeology, it's Connor from Bigfoot Anonymous, and I have a ton of strange stories, but I'm just going to keep it uh, fresh just because I just went to the great Florida Bigfoot Conference this weekend in Lakeland. I got to meet Cliff, got to hear Bobo do the call in the flesh, met Stacy Brown and heard all about the Torreya State Park footage, but I also stayed with a tracker named Tim, and he has Sasquatch DNA. He has taken tracks of these creatures, he's taken pictures of their face, and also has their hair. Seeing their hair, what it looks like under a microscope, it is amazing. Half clear, half brown, green, black. It takes the color of what's behind it. But we went hiking in the green swamp, night and the morning after, and we had a strange day. We heard strange whistles, trees falling down. One lady got attacked by bees. We saw a hawk with a broken neck. A uh, hidden relief saw movement out of his eye. Florida lone wolf heard a guttural growl. Tracker Tim T heard whistles. And I recorded some strange faces in my footage. We knew we were not alone out there. We never are. Bigfoot, they stay close to creeks, but they'll find you wherever deer and rabbit are. Everybody stay safe. And thanks again for putting out some great content and great merchandise. I'm still rocking my Florida Skunk Ape shirt loud and proud. Take it easy, guys. Thanks, Connor, for calling. That's awesome that you got to meet Cliff. And, you know, it looks like you're always going out to different locations and, and doing the thing. And it's really cool to see. So keep that stuff up. And again, if anyone has their own stories of encounters with the weird and unexplained, definitely call in. I'd love to hear your stories. 
And if I do get enough calls uh, over the next uh, few months or so, I'll put together a whole episode showcasing them for the next season. And also, if uh, you'd like to leave a review of the show over on Apple Podcasts, it's really helpful for me, uh, and it also means a lot. Uh, I've gotten a few reviews up there so far, and I just wanted to read a couple before we get into the episode today, uh, since this is the season finale. Uh, This first one here comes from Tiger Raider, and he says, This show is so good. Jeff really does the work and makes this an incredibly informative and entertaining experience. On top of that, the blog is a true gem, and they make some of the coolest merch in the game. <laughs> Thanks, man. That really means a lot. Uh, I'm glad you enjoy the blog and the show and all the merch in my shop, too. I'm <laughs> I'm so busy <laughs> trying to design new stuff all the time and, and doing everything else with Strangeology. So I really appreciate that, man. Thank you. And the next one I'll read comes from uh, Daniel, uh, a.k.a. Prepared Wolf, who is actually one of my patrons. So uh, he says, uh, very cool show that's fun, but not overly silly or with curse words every other sentence, relaying stories and facts on sightings of cryptid creatures or paranormal events. As a bonus, the host is an artist and makes items, shirts, mugs, etc. of these cryptid creatures and tales. Thanks, Daniel. That means a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, <laughs> I don't have as uh, a, a very big potty mouth, do I? So that's fine. Uh, and I know there's uh, there's a couple cryptid shirt designs that you're still waiting to see, uh, but I'll be getting to them eventually. So don't worry about that. And thank you again for the kind words and, and all your support really means a lot. All right, that's enough introduction chatter. So let's get into the episode. Since Halloween is right around the corner, it felt right to talk about weird and creepy cryptids and entities for this one. And none of these are necessarily Halloween related, but they're super fun stories of some bizarre and otherwise otherworldly creatures. So let's just call this my top creepy creature encounters list. And I had to whittle this down from a list of like 20. <laughs> so let's go. All right. So you can't get creepy and spooky without bats, right? Well, this first one on the list is the story of the Wisconsin man bat. The Pine Barrens Institute has an article with some great info about this cryptid that I checked out for this. And although Wisconsin isn't one of the more thought of hotspot states, when it comes to all things Fortean and cryptid, uh, it does have its fair share of cryptids and legends. Uh, think of the the Hodag of Rhinelander. Uh, there's also stories of phantom kangaroos, Bigfoot, uh, Thunderbirds, and more. So now the story of the Wisconsin man bat is a fairly new one, and The most known encounter with this mysterious creature happened on September 26th in 2006 by a Cherokee man named Wahali, who was 53 at the time, and accompanying him was his 25-year-old son. The two were driving at night around 9.30 p.m. in La Crosse County on Briggs Road near the village of Holman. Suddenly, their truck's headlight lit up this massive humanoid flying creature 
that was headed straight towards them. And just think of how terrifying that is. You <laughs> illuminate this giant creature that's airborne and it's coming right towards you. Now, apparently, the son was driving the truck and once he saw the creature on a collision course, he swerved to avoid this flying monstrosity. But at the last second, whatever this thing was, it pretty much turned on a dime and shot straight up into the sky. The two men reported that they could hear it shrieking as it disappeared from their sight and off into the night. Immediately after this encounter, the father and son were overtaken by a sudden feeling of nausea and they had to run out of the truck to vomit. And they threw up at least seven times over the course of a few really agonizing minutes. And once Wahali and his son felt they were finished throwing up, they managed to get back into the truck uh, and headed home, hoping that they would feel better uh, within a few short hours. But it turned out that both of them remained quite ill for the next week. Now, after some time had passed since the encounter and the mysterious illness that overtook them, Wahali decided to write down the experience. He sketched out what the creature looked like in the moment and described it as being six to seven feet tall, grayish-brown in color, and it possessed arms with leathery bat-like wings attached to them that spanned at least 10 to 12 feet, uh, complete with long claws as well. It also had humanoid legs and large feet with long claws too. It also appeared to have a visibly pronounced and distended ribcage, and of course you can't forget the mouth full of sharp teeth and yellow glowing eyes. Wahali stated that this creature looked hungry. Wahali maintained that whatever this was, it, was, it wasn't like anything he'd ever seen before, and it definitely wasn't a large bird or some other misidentified known animal. He was convinced that he and his son had encountered a 100% bona fide monster. And I mentioned at the beginning of this story that this is the most well-known case, but it apparently isn't the only sighting of a strange, large, humanoid, bat-winged creature stalking the skies around La Crosse, Wisconsin. Back in 1997, a Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources worker, along with a road crew, witnessed what could only be described as a flying humanoid being that could be related to the man-bat that appeared for Wahali 10 years later. The difference, however, with this sighting is that it was reported that the creature appeared much more reptilian and was covered in green and brown scales. The witnesses stated that they first noticed this creature watching them from the side of Highway 13 and then it took off into the air with its large wings, flew overhead, and then disappeared out of sight. To me, this doesn't really sound like the same creature exactly that Wahali and his son encountered. So it's possible Wisconsin has multiple flying cryptid denizens, or perhaps in some way that one was related to the man-bat. When I think of descriptions from the first case, it reminds me a lot of Mothman sightings. And this view is shared by some researchers who believe that this man bat 
whatever it is, could be related in some way to a Mothman-type entity. Some even say that the Man-Bat could be a harbinger of doom, as shortly after Mahali's encounter and subsequent illness, there were also several drownings in the rivers around the Lacrosse area. However, the original Mothman was described as more bird-like, of course. However, the Chicago Mothman, which is in a much closer vicinity to Wisconsin, has been described as having leathery bat-like wings in several reports, Uh, so it's possible those two are connected as well. And while this story may sound far-fetched, perhaps there is some truth behind it. There have been other encounters with this mysterious oversized bat creature, but there are still more questions as to what it could be. I suppose we'll have to wait and see until Man Bat decides to show himself again. All right, yeah, we we love the uh, the flyboys, <laughs> the flyboy cryptids on this show, but uh, let's move on to the next one. The next story here gets pretty otherworldly. On August seventeenth, nineteen seventy one. Two late 20-something residents of Palos Verdes, California, Peter Rodriguez and John Hodges, claimed that they had a run-in with something truly out of this world. The story goes that they had been hanging out at a mutual friend's house that night and left in Hodges' car around 2 in the morning. Hodges started the car and turned on the headlights, and he was about to put the car into drive But that's when he and Rodriguez saw this inexplicable sight out in the road. What they saw could only be described as a pair of these gigantic blue-colored brains laying in the middle of the street, just feet away from them. And at first, they were completely baffled by the sight of these things, but pretty soon, fear started to set in, and Hodges hit the gas, and the car sped off. Now, these two men lived in the same neighborhood as their friend, so the drive to their respective houses wasn't very long. It was around like 10 minutes at most. So Hodges dropped off Rodriguez at his house first and then quickly made it back to his own place. Once Hodges got inside his house, he noticed something strange. It was just 2 o'clock in the morning when he and Rodriguez left their friend's house And to him, only a few minutes had passed, but the clocks in his house all read 4.30 a.m. Hodges couldn't make sense of the time discrepancy, and there was no way that a drive that he's made dozens of times, if not more, uh, and knows for a fact that it only takes 10 minutes in between their houses, uh, became some two-hour-long voyage. Now, if you're thinking what I'm thinking... It seems to be a pretty clear-cut case of missing time, uh, something all too archetypal in alien abduction stories. So after this, Hodges kind of pushed this experience into the back of his mind, but it kept gnawing at him. And for five years, he dealt with this question of what really happened that night, and it just kept haunting him. So in 1976 he decided to undergo a hypnotic regression, hoping to uncover something, anything about the events that unfolded that evening in 1971. Now, hypnotic regressions were considered controversial then, 
and even now to some extent. Sometimes a psychologist who employs this technique could be at fault for using too many leading questions or implanting certain ideas into their patient's psyche, uh, resulting in the creation of false memories. This technique is used widely with experiencers of the alien abduction phenomena, and if done correctly, it seems that there can be some very interesting information that can come out and be revealed with these people that undergo this, this hypnosis. So Hodges goes under, and the first thing he remembers about the experience was that the larger of the two blue brain beings that he encountered was communicating with him telepathically and said, take the time to understand yourselves. The time draws near when you shall need to. You shall not remember this incident until we meet again. Hodges then remembered dropping off Rodriguez at his house and then arriving at his own, but the blue brain talking to him in the street back at their friend's house wasn't the end of the experience. Apparently, when Hodges got home, he became terrified and explained that the two big blue brains were there waiting for him. Somehow they had traveled from his friend's house and knew where his house was and somehow traveled over there. At that point, he fell unconscious and the next thing he remembered was waking up in what he referred to as a control room lined with what appeared to be computer consoles. He then noticed these space brain beings, but they were also accompanied by seven-foot-tall, bald, thin-lipped, gray-skinned humanoid creatures that had six webbed fingers and toes. And he thought these beings were even more terrifying than the space brains and are essentially what he's describing are like tall grays. So when the tall grays confronted Hodges, they explained that the brains were nothing more than organic translation devices so they could use them to communicate with humans on a telepathic level. Now that's pretty bizarre. Uh, so these alien entities began to explain to Hodges that mankind was on this dangerous course and they pulled up imagery using some kind of holographic technology that showed a series of all these nuclear explosions going off on Earth, along with this screen that showed the Earth itself with highlighted areas pinpointing places that had too much power. Uh, and after all of this, the aliens showed similar images of a different civilization on a distant planet that had been destroyed due to having too much power. So essentially, they're telling him, nukes bad. <laughs> and if you look into alien abduction stories, this is kind of a common theme that's reported. Uh, like the aerial school in Zimbabwe in 1994, uh, which is a super compelling case if you look into it. Uh, and I'll have to do an episode on that story at some point, but basically there was all these school children outside one day and this uh, UFO landed and some extraterrestrial entities came out and uh, started telling them all this stuff. So the, the tall grays 
uh, via the space brains, continued to warn Hodges that mankind needs to take the time to understand ourselves, and the time is coming soon when we will need to as a species. Now, it's not clear whether this was a warning from an intergalactic civilization bent on conquest or if they were trying to set humanity on the right path so it didn't destroy itself. Hopefully, it's the latter, right? (laughs) Now, once this lecture was over, Hodges said he felt this weird buzzing sensation all throughout his body, and the next thing he knew, he was back inside of his car in his driveway, and thankfully, there was no sign of the space brains. Shortly after his hypnotic regression, he and Rodriguez, who didn't get abducted but did witness the brains, were asked to draw them. And they basically drew the same globster-looking things, and the larger one had this distinct feature of having this red eye-looking thing on it. And then in the weeks that followed the regression, Hodges believed that these ETs had implanted something into his brain because he started to receive these telepathic messages, allegedly, from these space aliens. And they apparently predicted that uh, some war would break out in the Middle East in 1983 and spread to Europe and cause a third world war. But on this timeline, at least, that prediction thankfully didn't come to pass. So was this story real? I suppose it's possible, and alien abduction encounter stories do have some very high strangeness associated with them. So it is possible, but at the same time, it very well could just be a tall tale based on a wild imagination uh, after a fun night of hanging out with friends. So I guess we may never know if the space brains of Palos Verdes, California were real or just a figment of some wild imagination. All right. Well, we're going to stick in California for a couple more minutes because I can't move on without talking about this one. Uh, It's an age-old shadowy mystery. Now, this is a legend that goes back many years, and it's allegedly a phenomenon that happens in a pretty specific region in California. Uh, It happens along this 105-mile-long stretch uh, in the Santa Lucia Range that meanders along the Big Sur, which is California's Pacific West Coast, uh, which I'm sure you Californians out there know all about that. (laughs) But it stretches from Monterey County to San Luis Obispo County. I hope I pronounced that right. I probably butchered it. (laughs) But some say that if you find yourself hiking through this region, you may encounter these strange statuesque entities that will appear and disappear without explanation. These phantoms that lurk along the craggy peaks and rugged landscape of this mountainous region have come to be known as the Dark Watchers. Now, these entities have been described as humanoid and have towering heights ranging anywhere from 7 to 15 feet tall in in some reports. They typically appear to be dressed in all black cloaks and wear wide-brimmed hats. 
And some witnesses have also noted seeing them holding some kind of staff or walking stick. And despite the different details, some remain the same. Whatever they are, they're also silent and still and seem to be devoid of any facial or bodily features. These figures are mostly seen during dusk, usually up high on the mountain ridges, uh, some distance away from witnesses, and it seems like they just kind of stand there silently observing anyone who happens to notice or run across them while they're out hiking through these mountains. It's said that if you try to approach one of these beings, they'll simply vanish if you get too close. And when people go to the exact spot where they saw these entities, there's no physical evidence or trace left behind. Nothing to indicate that they were ever there in the first place. And any use of modern technology to try and detect them apparently has also proven to be a useless endeavor and doesn't work. (laughs) So what is the history behind these enigmatic figures that people have been reporting in this mountain range? Some say that there is a link to old Chumash legends and claim they have a rich history and lore all about these entities. And furthermore, it's been said that the Chumash tribe refer to them as the old ones, suggesting that they have been around for quite some time and maybe connected to a kind of creation myth or origin story. The most authoritative source on Chumash folklore uh, is a book called December's Child, a book of Chumash oral narratives that was written in 1974 by Thomas C. Blackburn. And as it turns out, this uh, 1,200-page long dissertation written by Blackburn uh, doesn't mention these entities at all, but that doesn't mean that there might not have been something missed or that there could be something similar in the folklore of these people. Now, in Chumash tradition, there is a belief that the world is divided into these kind of three sections. The first world above, which is basically the heavens, is supposed to be inhabited by celestial beings like the sun and the great eagle. And then there's the middle world, which is where humanity lives and is believed to be this island surrounded by the ocean. And then finally, the last world is called the first world below, which is inhabited by monsters. So the closest thing in Chumash folklore that sounds vaguely like a dark watcher were beings from this low world that they referred to as Nunassus, which these were essentially monstrous and misshapen animals that would come to the middle world at night and they would bring about bad fortune and spread illness uh, among other negative things. And while some Nunassus could be humanoid in form, they weren't really described as dark silhouettes and definitely not wearing uh, the signature uh, broad, wide-brimmed hats and dark cloaks. So it seems that the connection might just end there. So that's one thing to consider. There are, however, stories 
dating back to when Spanish explorers arrived in the region. And they apparently also reported seeing these strange, large humanoid silhouettes in the mountains. And they called them Los Vigilantes Oscuros, which is where we get the term the Dark Watchers. And interestingly, these shadowy figures seem to shy away from people wearing waterproof clothing, like raincoats, or people carrying uh, weapons like uh, firearms and that kind of thing. Um, But they do, however, seem to appear more often to people who are wearing old-fashioned clothing, which could indicate that maybe they could be some kind of like spiritual entity that has been around for a few hundred years, and maybe they only identify with uh, people who dressed like they did (laughs) back in the day. Uh, A notable piece of literature that mentions the Dark Watchers comes from the author John Steinbeck's book, The Long Valley, which was written in 1938. And in a short story that can be found within this book, there's a passage that reads the following. Pepe looked up to the top of the next dry withered ridge. He saw a dark form against the sky a man's figure standing on top of a rock, and he glanced away quickly, not to appear curious. When a moment later he looked up again, the figure was gone. Pepe looked suspiciously back every minute or so, and his eyes sought the tops of the ridges ahead. Once on a white barren spur, he saw a black figure for a moment, but he looked quickly away, for it was one of the dark watchers. No one knew who the watchers were, nor where they lived, but it was better to ignore them and never show interest in them. They did not bother one who stayed on the trail and minded his own business. Now, there's also some other literature. Uh, Poet Robinson Jeffers also wrote about these beings in his poem, Such Counsels You Gave to Me, and other poems. He wrote, He thought it might be one of the watchers, who were often seen in this length of the coast range. Forms that look human to human eyes, but certainly are not human. They come from behind ridges to watch, but when he approached it, he recognized the shabby clothes and pale hair, and even the averted forehead and concave line from the eye to the jaw, so that he was not surprised when the figure turning toward him in the quiet twilight showed his own face. Then it melted and merged into the shadows beyond it. And there's many more stories of of hikers going into the San Lucia Mountains and encountering these things, but what are they? A lot of witnesses think they might be spirits or some kind of supernatural entity, uh, maybe some kind of mountain spirit. Skeptics have explained the, the Dark Watcher phenomenon away as a couple of things. There's, uh, there's one explanation, uh, which is infrasound, which uh, could potentially be emitted uh, from deep within the mountains from kind of like earthquakes and vibration, vibrational activity, uh, which could potentially induce visual hallucinations in hikers. Uh, there are also could be optical illusions at play, such as the Brock Inspector, which is a natural phenomenon where a shadow of someone 
who's standing with their back to the sun can be magnified and cast upon clouds opposite to the sun's direction in the distance. Uh, if it's like foggy or there's some low, low lying clouds and it makes it appear like there's a large dark figure in the distance observing you. Uh, but, uh, you know, to me, like that could be an explanation for sure, but I would think you'd have to be looking, um, down, uh, <laughs> unless it's closer to, um, later in the day and the sun's setting where you can see this shadow cast on peaks above you. Otherwise it seems like you'd be looking down, but who knows? Uh, maybe people have just been making up ghost stories and, and running with it for all these years. We, we might never know. Uh, but it is a, an interesting phenomenon nonetheless. And, uh, certainly one of the more spooky ones in California. And now I'm going to take a quick break for a Patreon member shout out. If you've just started listening to the Strangeology podcast and didn't know, Strangeology has a Patreon where you can sign up to support what I do here. And there's some awesome benefits and rewards if you do. One of which is having early access to episodes. There's also bonus content with the Strangeology Beyond segment, which happens at the end of each episode and is almost its own episode itself. Uh, there's merch discounts, exclusive merch, Discord access to the new VIP room on the Strangeology Discord, and more. Uh, I have a really awesome group of members who help make the Strangeology podcast function at the level it's at and be able to do the things that I'm doing and help me grow to the next level. So if you'd like to help support this show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology and check out all the tiers I offer. So big shout out to Alex Dorgan, Alyssa, Mystic Novelty Company, Appalachian Huntsman, MetaZoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird, and the Cryptocasters podcast, Sean Cologne, Miranda Jarnot, John Hickenbottom, Maureen Asmat, Daniel Prepared Wolf, Gail Frederick, William Malcolmies, and Maya Shanton. So thank you all, and if you do sign up, just know that it helps me out a ton, and I really appreciate it. All right, now let's get back to the episode. All right, we're back. So we're going to travel now to the state of Indiana for the next story. Indiana is, uh, it's always kind of an enigma to me as far as cryptids and creatures for some reason. But the more I look into the Fortiana of that state, uh, the more weird and fascinating stories I uncover. And uh, shout out to uh, Easton for... Uh, mentioning these guys to me at some point um, <laughs> when I was coming up with this list, I was like, Oh, this, this would be a good one. Uh, and it's, it's a truly bizarre encounter with, with the unknown. And there's also kind of uh, a cover up involved in too. So let's talk about this one. So we're going back to 1996 and the location is the GMC Delphi interior and lighting plant number nine, which is located in Anderson, Indiana. Uh, 
Now, one day in November of that year, some workers apparently were given the totally awesome task of cleaning up one of the sludge pits uh, that's present at this plant. Now, that sounds like a really awful way to spend your workday, cleaning a sludge pit. However, there was something waiting for the workers in the pit, something strange and alien. And as they got to cleaning this sludge pit, they noticed something off within the sludge. And what was discovered were these grayish red creatures, several of them, uh, that appeared to be swimming in this toxic waste that kind of resembled squid. And several of the workers reported seeing them. <laughs> and it's like toxic calamari <laughs> man i don't i don't do seafood but now i extra don't want to do seafood <laughs> um so these things they weren't very large they were maybe uh 6 to 8 inches uh maybe a little bit longer in size uh some described them as about the size of a hand and they had these thin tentacles and it appeared they had like a single eye on the body mass of it. And whatever these things were just kind of seemed to be content to be propelling themselves through uh, this slurry of antifreeze and motor oil and other toxic chemicals. One of the workers managed to nab one of these these creatures, which became known as the oil pit squids, and killed it. <laughs> and afterwards, it was placed in a jar with the aim of, of sending it somewhere to be studied and analyzed to figure out just what the hell it was. And the workers decided to store it within the factory. And uh, evidently, there was even an anonymous complaint about this incident filed with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management uh, a few months later in February of 1997. Uh, that, in addition to describing the oil pit squid creatures, uh, it also disclosed that there was some illegal dumping of hazardous waste being done by this factory. Uh, so apparently, before anyone could send out the dead squid creature to analyze it, the jar and the specimen inside mysteriously vanished. And it sounds like there may have been some attempt maybe by upper management to cover it up, uh, especially if the state's environmental management department was contacted and getting involved because there was word of illegal dumping going on there. Uh, or maybe it was thrown out by accident or just lost in general. But to me, it sounds like a little bit of uh, higher ups maybe trying to take steps to uh, dispose of any evidence that uh, these things were there, which could potentially, you know, incriminate them and, and cause all sorts of uh, legal trouble and fines and all that stuff. So Apparently, after the pit was cleaned out and inspected, there weren't any more of these bizarre squid creatures left. None could be found. Um, so whether or not uh, another team came in to dispose of any evidence is is unclear. But uh, after that, uh, these these oil pit squids seemingly went away. Now, a man who knew one of the workers who was present during that day 
uh, wound up getting interviewed about this story and was quoted as saying uh, the following. And I'll just read this verbatim. Um, He says, I live in Indianapolis. There is a manufacturing town called Anderson, about 20 to 30 minutes north of the city. This story was originally told to me by a guy that I work with and lives in Anderson. At the Delphi plant, they had a tank that they used to store byproducts and chemicals from making bumpers. They found several squid-like creatures in this toxic goo. One apparently had an eye. The specimens were taken and no one ever saw them again. No word was ever sent as to what it really was. There were a few of them. They apparently were somewhat transparent and resembled squids, about as big as your hand. These chemicals would not be conducive to any kind of life. It's called the oil pit squid. So what were these things that were found in the Delphi 9 plant? Were they mutated squids or some kind of uh, worm or bacteria extremophile that thrives in toxic environments? Uh, Some have theorized that they were aliens or extraterrestrials, but I don't know about that one. Um, as it turns out, the spokeswoman at the time for the plant, uh, this woman named Sharon Morton, released a statement addressing the matter of these creatures and explained that it was nothing more than bacterial growths that formed when organic matter was placed in fresh water. And she went on to further explain that the cause for water getting into the sludge pit was the result of uh, a broken sprinkler nearby, uh, this sprinkler line that had been slowly leaking water, which seeped into the pit. And there's also the case that this entire story could have been fabricated, and perhaps it may have been inspired by episodes of the X-Files, which was in its heyday back in the mid nineties. And, you know, there were monster of the week episodes, uh, some that had like the fluke man that was living in, in the sewers, (laughs) this like mutant creature, uh, or even like the, the overarching alien agenda theme, uh, and the alien black oil goo that would infect and take over people's bodies. So uh, there's certainly something that could have inspired, uh, some disgruntled worker who wasn't happy about working in a, a sludge pit <laughs> all day and and wanted to maybe cause some mischief. Who knows? I guess uh, since apparently uh, if it was real, any of the samples are long since gone. So we'll probably never know uh, if the oil pit squids were real creatures or not. But it's certainly a fun one to think about. All right, let's move on to the next creepy creature. Uh, We're going to head on over now to nearby West Virginia because we can't not (laughs) for a creepy creatures list. Uh, So I'm not going to talk about Mothman, though. Um, Mothman deserves his own episode, and and, uh, he did get an honorable mention in in the Man Bat story. (laughs) So, uh, no, this one is uh, one of the lesser known and more bizarre creatures that have been encountered in this uh, cryptid uh, haven of a state. Uh, And this creature happens to be the Veggie Man. Now, the story goes that on a hot day in 1968, 
A man named Jennings Frederick had gone out for the day to go bow hunting in the back country outside of Fairmont, West Virginia. But little did he know of the harrowing encounter that he would soon endure. Without much luck finding game throughout the day, it was starting to get late. The day was drawing to a close. And as he made his way through the bush, Frederick began to hear this strange noise off in the distance. He described it as sounding like a record player that had its RPMs set way too high and noticed that this kind of high-pitched jabbering noise accompanied it. He decided to follow the sound and eventually found the source. And that's when he, he saw it and came face to face with this bizarre, unearthly creature standing before him. And as he stared at this creature in shock, he noticed that it looked sickly and weak. Uh, This creature was a lot taller than he was, but it was also so slender that it could be described as almost skeletal or like the stalk of a river reed with arms no thicker than the, uh, the circumference of a quarter. And its skin was green and eyes this sickly yellow. Uh, and alarmingly attached to its hands were these three super long fingers that had these kind of suction cups on the tips that had these needle-like thorns protruding out from the suction cups. And after after uh, Jennings took in what he was seeing, this weird, bizarre creature that, you know, he had no idea what this thing was. <laughs> He noticed that uh, the jabbering noise that he was hearing that kind of led him to meeting up with this creature started to intensify. And in his mind, Frederick began to hear this message that seemed to come from this creature that said in his mind, you need not fear me. I wish to communicate. I come as a friend. We know of you all. I come in peace. I wish medical assistance. I need your help. (laughs) Once this was communicated, the creature then lunged at uh, Jennings and wrapped its tendril-like arms around him. And whatever this thing was, it took took him off guard as to how strong it was. Uh, He was trying to break free, but he wasn't able to you know, loosen up the grip that this creature had on him from this, this, uh, this strange embrace. And then even more bizarrely and frighteningly, this thing then pierced the skin of his hand with, uh, these thorny fingertip suction cup apparatuses on it, on the end of his fingers. And it began to drain his blood apparently. And immediately pain surged up his arm and this creature stared at Frederick and he noticed its eyes were flashing and swirling colors from yellow to red, almost hypnotizing him and in the, in the moment making him forget the pain. And it reminds me of a lot, a lot of uh, like hypnotoad from Futurama. So think of that visual during this, this encounter. Uh, but even though Frederick couldn't feel the pain anymore it didn't make him forget the fact that he was being exsanguinated by this horticultural horror. <laughs> and just as suddenly as this vampiric hug happened, uh, the veggie man detached from Frederick 
and bounded away up a nearby hill at impossible speeds. The last thing that Frederick recalled was this deep humming sound coming from beyond uh, the hill that the creature bounded over and thought that maybe this creature was actually an extraterrestrial and was taking off in, in its spaceship. Now, Frederick would be haunted by this experience for the rest of his life, and he kept the story to himself for quite some time, uh, but eventually did wind up revealing his experience to uh, Gray Barker in 1976. Um, now, Veggie Man is, is pretty much a one-hit wonder, uh, as this is the only reported encounter with the being, and I'm not sure why it was called uh, the Veggie Man or the Vegetable Man and not something more like the plant man. <laughs> Anytime I think of veggie man, I always think of uh stinkweed from uh, a pup named Scooby-Doo, you know, the eighties rendition of Scooby-Doo when all the characters are, are preteens, <laughs> uh, that or Dr. Reginald, uh, Bushroot from Darkwing Duck. Yeah. Dating myself there. <laughs> so whether, whether or not this, uh, this creature was an alien or some kind of strange mutant humanoid plant creature, or just a plain old hoax is is something we'll never prove conclusively. When uh, when Gray Barker is involved, you do need to take things with a grain of salt. So perhaps Veggie Man is is still out there somewhere in West Virginia, but uh, ultimately we may never know if uh, this is re- is fact or or fiction. <laughs> Moving on, uh, this next story is the story of La Lachusa which is a creature that is uh, reported in the El Paso, Texas region, kind of Texas in general, and also Mexico too. Uh, This one goes out to you, Alex. (laughs) So in English, La Lechuza translates to the owl, but in local stories of this creature, it means the owl witch. Now, most sightings of these beings involve people actually seeing a human-sized owl, but Beyond its behemoth size, it also apparently has the supernatural ability to shapeshift into human form. According to the legends, Lachusa are basically women who sold their souls in exchange for being able to harness and utilize magical abilities. And in the evening hours, they're supposed to transform into a creature that has the body of an owl and Strangely, it mostly retains its human face. Now, this imagery is not too dissimilar to other legends like the harpy of ancient Greek mythology, which is interesting. And uh, apparently, Lachusa also have the ability to summon storms. And some believe the appearance of a thunderstorm can coincide with the presence of a Lachusa nearby. It's said that these owl witch beings will spend their nights searching for people to prey upon and often use auditory tricks like the sound of a baby crying, or they'll use whistling to lure in unsuspecting victims. And if a person is naive enough to go and investigate the noise or even whistle back, that's when Lala Chusa strikes and they'll wind up carrying off their prey off to their deaths. So, of course, you know, the main prey for Alishuza are adults, but they also 
will go after children as well as domestic pets from time to time, uh, like dogs and cats. But some believe that this cryptid uses some kind of psychic vampirism and they'll kind of like lurk outside people's homes and particularly ones where uh, couples are, are in conflict with each other or there's some kind of domestic abuse happening. So that kind of like negative energy seems to attract these owl witch beings. It's also believed that La Lachusa is somewhat of, of a harbinger of death. And if you do hear its cry, it could mean that someone in your household will die soon. It's kind of similar to lore about uh, the Banshee uh, from Ireland. And apparently these Lachusa, you, you can't kill them either. And the story behind that is that they typically seem to be unfazed by, by weapons. Like you can uh, shoot at it with a gun and nothing will happen, which is kind of funny because it's a, a lot of different uh, cryptid stories have that kind of aspect to it. <laughs> they, they seem to be bulletproof, either that or whoever's shooting at it has really terrible aim. Uh, apparently the, the only things that are effective uh, defenses against these creatures are salt. And if you hear the cries of one, apparently swearing swearing at it and cussing them out will, will eventually make them go away. Uh, though most claims are, are purely anecdotal, many people in this area have claimed to be followed home by abnormally large and black bird-looking creatures from time to time. And they'll wake up the next morning to find that their windows are all scratched to hell all around their house like something was trying to get in. And in one story from Chasing American Monsters by Jason Offutt, he mentions a brief story involving this community that was being harassed by a large black bird. And people began to suspect that a neighbor who was an older woman was actually a witch and was transforming into this flying bird creature. And one night when the creature was threatening children, a nearby homeowner took out his rifle and shot at the bird and the bird flew off and, and they didn't see it for the rest of the night. Now the, the rest of the neighbors then closely observed the, uh, the old woman neighbor <laughs> for a few days and she didn't leave her house and when she finally came out, she apparently was walking around with a suspicious limp, like she had uh, an injury on her leg. Uh, but whether or not, you know, that was um, a result of, of her transforming into a bird and, and getting shot in the leg, it was unclear. But <laughs> it is kind of an interesting story. So where do these Lachusa come from? Well, there's a few iterations of how they came to be. One legend behind this entity involved locals long ago finding out about a woman practicing witchcraft and dark magic. The area was obviously very religious and the townspeople wound up putting her to death. Lala Shusa is then supposed to be the spirit of this woman hellbent on revenge and there's also another variation of the story that basically states that Lala Shusa is a vengeful spirit of a woman uh, that comes around to torment the living and, and seek revenge. And in 
one more origin story or reasoning behind its desire to snatch up kids is that Lalachusa had a child who was wrongfully killed for a crime that they didn't commit. So the mother becomes one of these things to enact its revenge. And other stories state that Elishuza is actually a witch's familiar and will follow her every command, uh, whether it's to attack people or destroy personal property, uh, just to name a few <laughs> types of things it can do. Uh, and beyond that, there's theories that this owl witch is actually a minion of the devil himself. Now, is there anything you can do to ward off Elishuza? Well, apparently, uh, besides using salt, or, or swearing at it, you can apparently hang a rope with seven knots tied into it outside of your door to your house. And it's supposed to be this kind of sign of respect towards the creature and showing it to them will keep them from bothering you. And if you don't have that kind of defense in place, the next best thing, according to the lore, is that salt can be thrown into its face, which It'll cause it to retreat, and particularly a combination of salt and chili powder. I mean, that would probably make anyone run if you get that in your eyes. Um, yeah, so <laughs> there's there's very few things you can do to ward off a lechuza. So as long as you know the lore, you might be you might be safe, and you might be able to drive one away. <laughs> uh, and also, there is one more uh, thing that you can do, and it is reciting the Magnificat, which is known as the Song of Mary or the Canticle of Mary, which is one of the most ancient Christian hymns out there. Uh, and you apparently need to recite it forwards and backwards, uh, which if that does something, perhaps there is, you know, something, some kind of connection there with, with, uh, more, uh, dark powers, who knows? But, uh, that one is definitely a lot more work, <laughs> memorizing a hymn, uh, not only going from start to finish, but then doing it in reverse. I feel like the amount of time that that would take doing uh, a Lashusa would probably be halfway done tearing your face off. <laughs> so you might as well just swear at it and maybe go get the salt shaker. Um, but yeah, so it's like if these creatures are ancient, you know, it's it's probably also going to have to be in Latin. And if you don't know Latin, you're probably boned. So for me, uh, I'll just stick to swearing at it and uh, throwing salt. <laughs> More my style anyway. All right. So we've had man bats, vampire vegetable plant monsters, space brains, owl witches, and mutant squid creatures living in toxic sludge. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's appropriate that we do one more cryptid. And this final one on the list, we're going to do, we're going to go with the, the canine variety because who doesn't love a good dogman story? So in West Middletown, Maryland, there is this legend of a large bipedal wolf-like cryptid that's known as the Deweo. People have claimed witness to this dark-furred creature as far back as the 18th century and possibly earlier in history. Most sightings describe the Deweo as very similar to your typical werewolf or, or dogman. It's covered in fur, has a long bushy tail, and it's usually around six feet tall or more. And if you're familiar with the legend behind the Snallygaster of Frederick County, Maryland, 
you'll know that the Snallygaster and the Deweo are supposed to be mortal enemies and are said to battle it out with each other from time to time. So the Dutch predominantly settled this region of America. And if you listen to my episode on the Snallygaster, you might remember that the legend of it really came from German folklore and found its way across the Atlantic as people with Germanic roots immigrated to America. And as it turns out, the Dutch brought over their stories of a creature in their folklore called the Hexenwolf as well in the 1700s, which this story has deep roots embedded in old German folklore as well. The Hexenwolf is described in a very similar manner to the Deweo. It's basically described as a mammalian biped with features similar to a wolf, but with the stance and stature of a human. Legends of the Hexenwolf are considered by some to be kind of like the origin story or what influenced stories of werewolves and other canine biped beast creatures like the Michigan Dogman. Some believe that the stories of the DeWeo proliferating in this area may have been in response to stories of the Snallygaster terrorizing towns and farms as the DeWeo is kind of viewed as more of a protector against the Snallygaster that could go toe-to-toe with each other. Uh, so even though that seemed to be the case, people still would put things into place to try and ward off these these mythical creatures. They would paint seven-sided stars on their barns, uh, which you can still find today in Frederick County, Maryland, uh, and even in other places as well nearby. And this seven-sided star was supposed to be something to keep the Snallygaster at bay. And people who also believed in the Hexenwolf would paint stars on their barns as well. And in most cases with that, it seemed that five-pointed stars may, may have been used more often to ward off the Hexenwolf. And it's just a, it's an interesting connection between the two. So in the 20th century, the majority of sightings of a mysterious humanoid dog creature mostly happened between the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, but it wasn't until 1944 when the first use of the name DeWeo appeared after a sighting in West Middleton, Maryland. And those who reported the presence of a monster claimed to have heard frightful screams nearby and later found unidentifiable footprints in the area where the screams were heard. And then years later, it wasn't until the 1960s that the first detailed modern report surfaced about a DeWeo. A man using the alias John Becker sent in a local story to local Maryland papers chronicling his deadly encounter with some humanoid dog creature. Becker claimed that he was attacked by one of these dogmen in 1965, and the creature, he said, looked like a wolf but walked like a man. And I'm going to read a little excerpt here from the Frederick News, uh, which came from an article dated on November 27th, 1965. Near the woods of Gambrel State Park, John Becker went out in his yard to investigate a strange noise. It was getting dark, and he had started back to the house when he saw something moving towards him. It was as big as a bear, had long black hair, a bushy tail, and growled like a wolf or a dog in anger. As it got closer, it stood up on its hind legs and attacked him. 
Becker fought the creature until it ran into the woods, leaving him, his wife, and children in horror. Deciding to remain anonymous under the alias John Becker, he filed a report with the local state police telling of an attack by a mysterious monster that he called a DeWeo. Further reports from the Frederick News described hunters witnessing a strange black beast roaming through the forests. Uh, there was a woman from the town of Ellerton that talked about residents in her area hearing strange baby-like cries out in the distance and the sound of a shrieking woman for months on end. Uh, there was another woman from the town of Jefferson that claimed to have seen a dog-like creature the size of a calf chasing around cows in a, a pasture on a nearby farm to her own house. And sightings continued throughout 1965, but as winter came around, the sightings started to kind of slow down and wane. And it wasn't until the next summer in 1966 that activity picked up again. So another man by the name of, of Jim A. claimed to have encountered a DeWeo while he was out camping in the middle of the woods and he was headed towards a place to camp for the night. And he described that the creature he saw was the size of a deer, but it was standing on two legs and it was covered in dark brown fur. And he described its head as being triangle shaped with pointed ears and a chin and as Jim approached this creature, it emitted this terrible scream and then ran off. Now, interestingly, Jim apparently noted that its legs kind of stuck out from its sides, um, which is a little different <laughs> than, than a human. Uh, and it also seemed to scuttle around like a spider, uh, which is pretty creepy. And <laughs> it's like, if things are scuttling around you, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> Now, the next uh, series of sightings uh, happened 10 years later in the 70s uh, in Frederick County. And this account comes from Linda Godfrey's book, The Michigan Dogman, Werewolves and Other Unknown Canines Across the USA. So in 1976, uh, these two men were driving out on Route 77 near Thurmont, and they claimed that they saw this large wolf-like biped run across the road right in front of their car. And I'll just read the, the quick quote from the book. Uh, they described it as, as follows. It was at least six feet tall, but inclined forward since it was moving quickly. Its head was fairly large and similar to the profile of a wolf. The body was covered in brown or brindle-colored fur, but the lower half had a striped pattern of noticeable darker and lighter banding. The forelegs were slimmer and held out in front as it moved. The back legs were very muscled and thick, similar to perhaps a kangaroo. This was not a hominid-type creature. It did not have the characteristics of an ape. It was much more similar to a wolf or a ferocious dog. However, it was definitely moving upright and appeared to be adapted for that type of mobility. I was particularly impressed by the size and strength of its back legs, the stripes on the lower half of the body, and the canine wolf-like head. So that's a pretty uh, pretty vivid description there of what this thing could be. Almost kind of makes me think of uh, like a Tasmanian uh, tiger or thylacine uh, in, in the way that its, uh, its fur and banding on its body is. It's kind of interesting. And then uh, there, there was another sighting in 1978 
where these park rangers um, were in the Cunningham Falls area of Thurmont, Maryland, and they reported encountering uh, a large hairy creature running on two legs. But that's about all of the, uh, the information on that particular story. So sightings of frightening dogman creatures have been reported as recently as 2009 in this area of Maryland. In uh, an article about the DeWeo over on Lon Strickler's blog, Phantoms and Monsters, he included an anecdote from uh, this guy called the the paranormal pastor, uh, Robin Swope. Now, this guy, Swope, talked to some witness who claimed to have seen a dogman-type creature, and she explained that she was driving on this rural road near Myersville in Middleton, Maryland, uh, out on the outer edge of the Gambrel State Park in late summer of 2009. And she apparently encountered something that terrified her. And I took a look and, and it's a pretty forested area. You know, it's uh, certainly there's a lot of civilization, but this one swath of forest is pretty, pretty dense and, you know, it's the roads that go through there. They're lined by trees on, on both sides. So something could just jump, jump out in the road with no warning. And her story goes that she was driving towards uh, a road called Haw Bottom Road uh, to visit a friend. And just for reference, this road is, is it's a single lane road with very few houses on it. And it passes through the western edge of the Frederick Municipal Forest, like just north of Gambrel State Park. And as she's driving, the, the forest became thicker and she started having this feeling like she was being watched by something in the woods. Uh, and whatever it was, it also seemed to kind of be keeping pace with her car. And like the hair on her neck was starting to stand up, like something, something was up. And she wanted to stop the car because she was beginning to shake from this overwhelming sense of fear and dread. And she was afraid she might crash into a tree since the road was so narrow. You know, there wasn't much room for the car to go anywhere, you know. Uh, but instead of coming to a complete stop, she wound up just slowing the car down. And at that point, that's when she saw the thing that had been watching her and she saw some large animal kind of bobbing through the underbrush, keeping pace with her car, uh, which at this point she was going probably around 25 miles per hour. And against her better judgment, I would say <laughs> she slowed the car down even more uh, to determine whether or not what she was seeing kind of moving its way through the forest was actually there or maybe she was just seeing things. Uh, so she slowed the car down to almost like a walking pace. And in that moment, this creature, uh, this brown blur leapt out of the woods and onto the side of the road. And when it landed, she could see this brown furred dog like creature standing right in front of her on two legs. And this thing just stared at her and had its fangs presented. And like the sight of that, this woman just described as being burned into her mind essentially and the eyes of this thing were completely black its hands were armed with terrible claws on its fingertips 
Uh, drool was dripping down from the maw of this abominable thing, and she could also hear it growling and breathing heavily. And then after you know, just a moment, this creature leapt once more back into the woods. And in that instant, uh, the woman hit the gas on her car as hard as she could, and the car peeled out on the road, and she just got the hell out of there, not once looking back to see if this thing was after her. Um, but as she got away, she did say that she no longer felt that uh, whatever that was was watching her. And this woman believed that she saw a werewolf, but the true identity of this creature kind of ate away at her uh, for a while. And eventually she did some research in a local college library and realized that this creature that she had encountered has been encountered and feared by many for centuries in this area. And its name was DeWeo. So are these creatures real? Uh, the anecdotal stories certainly are compelling, but it looks like there's enough forested area and low population of humans that this part of Maryland and many other parts of the world could hide creatures like this. All right, everyone, it's about that time. So this is where I'm going to leave things for uh, today's episode. I hope that you liked this list of spooky, weird, creepy, and otherwise lesser talked about cryptids for this uh, spooky season that we're in. And, you know, I'm going to have to do another episode like this in the future because I had so many more on the list that I wanted to uh, research and look into that were super fun. Maybe next time I do it, I'll, I'll go more international because there's a lot of really intense stories of of cryptids and creatures in other countries that uh, uh, kind of sometimes make American uh, cryptids look like child's play, honestly. <laughs> but let me know over on Instagram or Facebook uh, which one of these cryptids was your favorite. And if you know of any other super bizarre cryptids or entities that you want me to cover in future episodes, leave a comment or shoot me a DM or uh, shoot me an email. I'm always open to suggestions for new topics to cover, and I'm hoping to hit the ground running with season two, which you can expect to start hopefully uh, around late November to early December. I just started earlier if I wasn't working on getting ready for some conferences, uh, Fortean Fest and, and uh, CryptidCon, and also working on some new YouTube content too. So if you missed the podcast, definitely keep an eye on my YouTube channel for some new stuff there. And uh, I'll still be posting to uh, Instagram and, and Facebook. And speaking of conferences, if you're in Maine or New England in general, uh, just a reminder that I'll be at Fortean Fest in Springvale, Maine on Saturday, November 6th. Uh, the event starts at 9.30 a.m. and just goes till 4. Uh, there's going to be vendors uh, like yours truly, <laughs> uh, speakers, and, and a lot more cool stuff going on. Uh, you can find the Facebook event page for more details. Uh, or if you join my Discord server, I'll be posting some more info about it there too. 
And then on November 20th and 21st, I will be at CryptidCon in Lexington, Kentucky. And that's going to be a wild time. I'm going to be joining in on a roundtable uh, discussion with other podcasters. Uh, the first night of the conference, uh, Moth Boys will be there, Manic Pixie Dream Ghouls, and several others. So it's going to be something. Uh, and if you're in that area, definitely come out, say hi, uh, and support all the artists and people involved. And yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, big thanks again to all my patrons and for all the listeners out there uh, who check out the Strangeology podcast and uh, support the show by sharing and enjoying the content that I'm creating here. Um, I hadn't checked the stats for a little while, but I just checked and it looks like we we are now past 7,000 downloads. So getting closer and closer to that 10,000 mark, which is really, really cool. Uh, I can't believe that... Uh, uh, we're not even a year in and, um, the, the show has, has gotten around to so many people. It's really, really an awesome feeling. So thank you again. And if you ever have any feedback about the show or suggestions, or just want to say hi, my DMS are always open. Um, and you can also email me at strangeologist at gmail.com. And definitely give me a follow over on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and TikTok. Uh, I've been running a giveaway contest um, for the past couple of weeks where three people will win some merch from my shop uh, once my Instagram hits 4,000 followers. Uh, as of recording this, I think I'm only like 10 or so away from that point. Uh, so by the time this drops, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe it'll be too late. Uh, <laughs> but if not, definitely enter if you haven't yet. You'll get some cool prizes if you do. And if you haven't checked out my shop yet, you can find it over at uh, strangeology.etsy.com. I've got a lot of stuff up there uh, with new stuff being added all the time. Um, I think I'm up to like 35 home state cryptid and creature designs. Uh, and so much more uh there's shirts hoodies long sleeves tank tops stickers mugs um, i've got a couple of enamel pin designs uh, which i'm hoping to expand upon soon with some new designs there uh, and also be sure to head on over to the the strangeology hq website while the podcast is on break uh, strangeology.com uh, where you can find my blog and i have articles uh, written about cryptids and ufos and other weird happenings uh, so yeah, I'm terrible at updating it. <laughs> so there's not, there's not as much content up there as, as I would like, but, uh, hopefully I'll be able to get some new articles up soon. And, uh, if, if you are a writer of all things Fortean, definitely get in touch. If you want to submit, uh, an article, yeah, just shoot me an email and we'll chat. And that's about it for today's episode, everyone. I'm going to take a short break here. And when I come back, I'll be going international and talking about, a really bizarre story that comes out of England. So if you're interested in, in signing up to become a Patreon member of the show, uh, just know that you get access to the Strangeology Beyond segment, which is for Patreon members only. And I, I try to come up with some really crazy stories for y'all. <laughs> and it's a good time. So if you want more content like that, definitely consider checking that out. But anyway, as I always say, until next time, take care of yourselves and each other, and keep it strange.
Hey everyone, thanks for sticking around for Strangeology Beyond. I guess this is uh, this is kind of a season finale of sorts too. It's been a, it's been a wild ride this first whole season, and I really appreciate all of the support that you've all given me. 